0: The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org.
1: Holy and gracious God, you are both holy and gracious. And I give thanks to you for both of those things. You're holy and righteous, pure. What we need, but what we aren't. And so I thank you that you are gracious. You make a way for us to come back to you and to be changed into holiness and righteousness without which we cannot stand in your presence. You are both holy and gracious. And I pray now, Lord, that you would meet us here, that you would teach us, that you would show us some of your holiness and, and graciously show us some of your deliverance, that you would make plain to our minds, plain to our hearts who you are, and that you would make plain to us the call to trust you and to hope in you. Would you do that here in our midst right now. Would you open up the Scriptures and speak to us here? And would you be honored? Would we be changed? It's my hope and my prayer, Lord. Come and be in our midst. In Christ's name, Amen. Emmanuel. God with us. A word and its definition that We sing in many songs and hymns at this Christmas time, even this morning we did. It's familiar to us because Matthew in his gospel, when he's describing the birth of Jesus, refers to this. He describes Jesus' birth, mentions a verse from the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah, and then says, the birth of Jesus fulfills that, Emmanuel. We know that, we sing it. But I wonder, do we actually understand the fullness of, of what that concept, Emmanuel means? Do we actually understand all that it is, both good and potentially bad? There is a potentially bad side to Emmanuel. Do we get that? I'm not so sure that we do. And so this morning, to help us understand that a little bit better, I'm deviating away from our usual series in the book of Acts, We're going to take some time this morning to look at a passage in the book of Isaiah, chapter 7 in Isaiah, which is the original context of the Emmanuel verse that Matthew quotes. We're going to go back, look at that chapter, then bring it forward and connect it to Matthew. And my hope is that at the end you would understand a little more fully all that Emmanuel means, what Matthew's trying to get at, and that the result in your heart would be deeper, deeper, more profound, more resolute trust in Jesus. That's my hope this morning. That's where we're going. We're going to go back to the book of Isaiah and read a passage that at first won't seem very much like Christmas to you, but we'll come back around. Before I go there, though, let me give a little bit of context to Isaiah 7 because we're jumping back a couple hundred years from the time of Jesus. At this point in Isaiah, things are not going well for the people of Israel. Israel. The whole 12 tribes actually have been divided now for about 200 years. There are 10 tribes to the north that are actually called Israel, sometimes called Ephraim, depending on what translation you have. Those 10 tribes to the north are separated off from the two tribes to the south that are called Judah, and their capital city is Jerusalem. The 10 tribes of the north had long ago departed from the Lord. They walked away from him, and so in this passage, they're the bad guys, actually. And the two tribes in the south were kind of wavering back and forth. They were a little bit better for a little while longer. So our setting here is the prophet Isaiah in Jerusalem, the capital of the south, speaking to the king of Judah, Ahaz, in the midst of a a military attack coming from the north, from Israel and its ally, Syria, also called Aram. He hears about this attack, and King Ahaz of Judah is terrified by it. How should he respond? Let me read the passage. Isaiah chapter 7. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, The heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Sheir Yashuv, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And say to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear. And do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin in Syria and the son of Ramalia. Because Syria with Ephraim, the son of Ramalia, has devised evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is resin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be broken to pieces, so that it will no longer be a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. In that day, The Lord will whistle for the fly that is at the end of the streams of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria, and they will all come and settle in the steep ravines and in the clefts of the rocks and on all the thorn bushes and on all the pastures. In that day the Lord will shave with a razor that is hired beyond the river with the king of Assyria, the head and the hair of the feet, and it will sweep away the beard also. In that day, a man will keep alive a young cow and two sheep, and because of the abundance of milk that they give, he will eat curds, for everyone who is left in the land will eat curds and honey. In that day, every place where there used to be a thousand vines worth a thousand shekels of silver will become briars and thorns. With bow and arrows, a man will come there, for all the land will be briars and thorns. And as for all the hills that used to be hoed with the hoe, you will not come there for fear of briars and thorns, but they will become a place where cattle are let loose and where sheep tread. The chapter begins by recounting that alliance between Syria and Israel. They'd attacked Judah, they'd won some initial battles, and now they were besieging the capital city, Jerusalem. And when the house of David, that is the king and his, and his helpers, his aides, learned that there was an alliance going on here between these two powers, Syria and Israel, they were terrified. And so God intervenes and sends the prophet Isaiah to speak to him. And in verse 4, he brings word from the Lord, Do not fear. Calm down. Be at peace in your heart. Relax. Don't fear these two smoldering stumps firebrands. He calls them like sticks from a fire that used to be ablaze, but is now dying out. They're two sticks that you could now actually pick them up, and they'd be smoldering on the end, but they're not a fire anymore, and they're pretty soon going to be extinguished. That's what he calls these two countries that are terrifying Ahaz. Smoldering stumps. Don't be afraid of them, whatever they say. Don't fear them. Verse 7, For thus says the Lord, their plans are not going to stand. They shall not stand, because the heads of those two countries are merely men. That's what he's saying in verses 8 and 9. The head of such and such a country is its capital city, and the head of that capital city is only its king. Just men. Don't worry about them. Whatever they plan, whatever plot they hatch is not going to stand. They're going to fall. But you, Ahaz, you, if you do not stand firm in your faith, you also will fall. That's the issue right there at the end of verse 9. The enemies, the threat that's against you, all those people that you're afraid of, they're not actually the issue, Ahaz. The issue is really about you and your faith. Are you firm in faith or not? Now, Of course, I know, says the Lord. You're the king of Judah. You sit on the throne of David. You profess to believe in the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. You have to. It's required. You memorize all this stuff when you become king. You know it. You say it. You affirm it. But is it real? Here now at the time of testing, we're going to find out, is it real or not? Are you firm in your faith or is it just a faith that blows in the wind? And now here in this threat, you're going to walk away. Which is it? Let's see, verse 10, the Lord says, Ask me for a sign. Reach out to me, Ahaz. Talk to me. Engage with me. Ask me for a sign. Let me prove my faithfulness. Let me show you that I am eager to engage and help and deal with these guys. Reach out. Ask me for something. And Ahaz's response is super spiritual on the surface. Far be it from me to test the Lord even referring to a passage in the Bible that says we shouldn't test God. It's in a different context. It doesn't apply here. But he's referring to that and seems on the outside to be really spiritual. I'm not going to test God, implying I believe God without him having to prove it to me. But that's not true. That's not the case. Ahaz doesn't want a sign from the Lord. Because any sign that God gives is going to just be more inconvenient truth that he has to argue away. He's already made up his mind. He's going elsewhere. You can read about this in 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles. He's facing a military and political threat, and he's picked up a, a military and political solution. Insanely, Ahaz has reached out to Assyria and is pursuing a covenant alliance with them. Now, you've got Syria, and Assyria is a different country. It's the superpower of the region. These people are ruthless Destroying countries everywhere. And the king of Judah has said to these ruthless, wicked people, let me make an alliance with you. Come and bail me out. It's insane. Be like offering up White House security to Osama bin Laden. It's insane. But he's done it anyway. That's where his heart and his mind are. I don't want to deal with you, God. Let me cover it over with some, some spiritual language. I'm actually going elsewhere to my worst enemies. man says, commenting on this, if a man will not believe in God, he will come to be able to believe anything, including the foolishness that Assyria will be good for Judah. That's what its king does, though. It goes to Assyria. It says, come, come help me. That's what he really is saying in his heart. but With his lips, he's professing faith. You can't deceive God. God says to him then through Isaiah verse 13, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little a thing for you to fool with men, but you're also going to fool with God. Tiring me with this wearisome game you're playing. Very well then, I'll give you a sign. You didn't ask for one, I'm going to give it to you anyway. And here's our Christmas verse. Here's the sign. Behold The virgin. Let me pause there for a second. That word kind of catches our attention because it's Christmas and we know the the New Testament story, Jesus was born of a virgin, that catches our attention. But actually in the original, here in in Isaiah, the word virgin is rather ambiguous on the question of virginity. There would be stronger words that would make it clear either way, but this is kind of a middle-of-the-road sort of word. An English translation that some have offered might be young maiden. It allows the possibility of virginity, but it's really emphasizing this is a young, unmarried girl who, of course, should be a virgin. But that the main emphasis is not falling on the woman. The main emphasis is on her child, the son. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And by the time he comes of age, By the time he reaches the age when he knows right from wrong and is able to choose right from wrong, before he comes of age, he will eat curds and honey, and these two countries you dread will be gone. We know from further down in verse 22 that eating curds and honey is kind of like minimal provision. It's it's milk-based provision. It's not the the richness of meat and grain and wine. But it's not starvation either. It's kind of -of middle-of-the-road sort of provision. So if you're Ahaz and you hear this sign so far, you think, "Eh, that's pretty good. We'll be surviving and my enemies that I'm afraid of are going to be gone. Sounds okay. Keep reading. Verse 17. And the Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house a day unlike any since the country was divided. And then loaded at the very end of the statement to, to put emphasis on it. He'll bring the king of Assyria. Now, nothing's been said about Assyria so far. Ahaz, in his mind, knows what he thinks about Assyria, knows what he's done with them. But now it comes out in the open that God knows. it's going to bring Assyria. Verse 18 to 25 then describes what that will be like. The Lord will whistle for Assyria and summon her, and Egypt too eventually. And her armies are going to come in like insects on the land and go everywhere and cover everything Verse 20, And the Lord will use these wicked Assyrians to shave Judah. This is a sign of deep humiliation in their culture. To shave grown, mature men, to shave all of the hair off their bodies from head to toe, all of it, including the beard, which was a sign of, of maturity and stature. It's going to take mature men who were ruling and reigning kings and advisors and return them to prepubescent boys, shaming them with Assyria. And then the economic situation, 21 and following, you could sum it up with one word, depopulation. The reason that every man is able to save a couple animals for himself is that all the other people are dead. War and famine's killed off everybody, and so you, everybody can have plenty of animals because there aren't any other owners left. And with such a small, shrinking population, yeah, there's abundance of milk, but all around the land is returning to wilderness. Because they can't sustain agriculture. They can't hold it back. It's creeping in. Pastures are overtaken by weeds and thorns and briars. The country's in decline. All of that flowing from the sign of Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? Many of us know. God with us. And here's the great irony that many of us miss at Christmas time. Emmanuel, God with us, is not unconditionally good. Might be, but it might not be. How is God with Judah here in these verses? Well, he's here summoning Assyria, whistling to bring them on, using them to shave his people, using them to to decline this country. You will get Emmanuel. I will be with you. But will I be present with you to bless or to curse? To deliver or to afflict? Which will it be? Verse 9. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. Which is it going to be, Ahaz? Keep reading. Ahaz chose poorly and the consequences were devastating. How about you? That's the encounter in Isaiah 7, and it challenges us this morning here with this main point. God is present now. God is present to deliver or to afflict. Which one it will be for you depends upon whom you are trusting. He's here. He's present. Emmanuel, God has come among us in a profound way. That's what Christmas is about. He has come. He has entered into this world and is right here. But what that means for you depends completely upon whom you trust. Him or any number of other things. That's what Emmanuel means. We're going to approach that through three main points this morning. It'll be a positive one, a negative one, and I'm going to thirdly tie it back to Christmas again. First point is the positive one it's the heart of the truth first offered to Ahaz. It's the hope here. God is present to deliver those who trust him. God is present to deliver those who trust him, him alone. Not him in combination with something else, not other things, not yourself. Trust him. And if you depend and hope in him alone, God is present to strongly deliver you. He's eager to do so, in fact. That's the word the Lord speaks to Ahaz as he's terrified of this military alliance. He says to him, don't fear. Take heart. Don't be faint in heart. Don't worry. Look at these guys. They're nothing. he doesn't mean Ahaz think about this again you can take these guys they're nothing compared to you that's not what he means he means they're nothing compared to me you can read the history Ahaz knows the history he looks back he knows I've already lost a bunch of battles suffered hundreds of thousands of casualties and they're besieging my capital I can't take these guys I need outside help I need someone to come and deliver me I cannot do it he knows it God knows it When God says, don't be afraid, he means, don't be afraid these guys, they're just men. Their plans are going to fail. They're only men. And I am the sovereign Lord of the universe. I reign over all things, over men and women and capital cities and countries and kings everywhere. That's who I am, Ahaz. Here in chapter 7, I'm the same God that I was in chapter 6. When Isaiah saw the Lord seated high and exalted, the train of his robe filling the whole temple, majesty and splendor, and the angelic beings cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the place shakes, filled with smoke, and Isaiah falls down as though dead before him blown away by what he sees about God that's who God is in chapter 6 he's the same God in chapter 7 Isaiah knows it Ahaz is well aware of it he's read the scriptures he knows them and God is reminding him of this by way of diminishing these kings these guys are just men I'm me he's telling him this not to inform him but to woo him come to me remember who I am come to me I'm eager to help you. I want to stretch out my hand and deliver you. Come, Ahaz. Stand firm right next to me and don't be afraid. They're nothing for me. They're just men. I'm God. I'd love to deliver you. Ask me for a sign. Engage with me. Like all your fathers did before, like your son Hezekiah will afterward. Hezekiah, his son, does what Ahaz should When another king comes and besieges and taunts him, Hezekiah takes a letter into the temple and says, God, this is your problem. Deal with it. That's what he wants Ahaz to do here. Come, engage me. I am eager to deliver those who trust me. Please come. All the power that Ahaz needs is right there on the table offered to him all the power that you need is right there on the table offered to you in your life i many of you here i don't know this morning but i'm sure in your life and in the lives of the ones i do know there are many things from which you need deliverance many things some physical, tangible, that you can see with your own eyes, that you can read about on a piece of paper. Financial pressures and health concerns. Complicated family or relational problems. All the things that at the holiday time we tried to forget about, but are still there, and we'll come back with a vengeance in January. You have those things in your life. They demand your attention. Sometimes you can't even forget about them if you try because they're so pressing. They're there. I don't know what it is in your life, but it's there. He's eager to deal with that. He will be present in your life to deliver you from it if you will trust Him. Now, He may deliver you from it, as in remove the problem entirely, and He may deliver you through it giving you strength and sustaining you and teaching you about himself while he carries you through the problem. Either way, he's eager to deliver you if you'll trust him with those very tangible physical things in life. But beyond that, those things are not your greatest problem. Beyond that, we need deliverance in here, in the soul. The physical connects to these things because it surfaces the problems that are in here. But ultimately, fundamentally, we have a spiritual problem. It shows itself in how we deal with all of life, but primarily and especially it reveals itself in how we deal with God. The law of God requires holiness, absolute moral perfection, purity, righteousness, without which we cannot see God. The law of God requires that of us because that's who God is. And he cannot tolerate sin. That's required of us, required of you, and we aren't like that. By nature, we are far from that, fallen and sinful. The physical and the tangible things in life cry out for our attention. and Sometimes it's easy to overlook the problems that are in here, the problems between us and God. We can forget about them for much of the year. But they are the real problems and will keep us separated from him forever if we don't deal with them. You must see that as a critical problem in your life. Thank God that he is also eager to deliver from that problem. Maybe even especially eager to deliver from that problem. That's why Jesus came. Jesus came to the earth. God came and took on flesh so as to die on a cross. Not to just display love to us so that we would have a model that we could follow, but to shed blood to pay the penalty that sin demands. Jesus died to appease the wrath of God against sin, against your sin if you'll trust Him. If you're here this morning and you haven't trusted Him, you don't know Him. You've been relying on all kinds of different ways, your own religion, your own efforts, your own good works, or some combination of all those things and more. You're relying on your own ways to make you right with God, to bring you back, to provide deliverance for yourself. None of those things work. Only Jesus' death on the cross delivers. Come to Him. That's His simple hope, His plea, His offer. I stand ready. I will be with you. I want to, I am eager to deliver you from your sin if you will trust Me and Me alone. Come to Him. Many of us here have, I know. That should be our attitude, just the same. Come to Him. Many of us have already come. We've trusted Him. We know Him. But we struggle day in and day out to trust Him for deliverance in all the little areas of life, whether it be our struggle with sin today or tomorrow or the tangible thing that's pressing in in your life. You struggle to trust Him. Come. That's His word to you from this chapter. I stand eager to deliver you. Come and trust me. Place it before me and say, Lord, this is your problem. Don't go somewhere else. Bring it to Him. It is a sweet thing to have God by your side. You're a Christian. He says to you, I love you. I want to help. If you're a parent, you know what this is like. You see your kid struggling with something. Wrestling with their, the knot on their shoe. Pulling and pulling and pulling and pulling. And you say, you know, if you bring that over here, I can untie that really easily. might take a little work with a pen or something, but I can get it. I can do it. You are not going to be able to do it. Come. But the kid keeps wrestling. Come. Right over here. I'll help. God's saying to you, you're my child. I love you. You're in my family. I've adopted you. Come. I do deliverance. Come, trust me. God is present to deliver those who trust him. Don't go somewhere else. Which leads to the second point. The second one is the negative one. It's the threat carried in Isaiah chapter 7. The other half of the Emmanuel sign that we, unfortunately, usually overlook. God is present to afflict those who do not trust Him. To those who do not stand firm in faith with Him, God gives affliction. And I choose the word affliction very carefully because I'm trying to be vague. It could be any number of things a whole wide range of things. The point is that he will bring something into your life that is difficult, hard, painful, confusing, something that will press you. So I'm trying to be vague with what he'll do and, and how he'll do it and what his intentions are because if you're a Christian, of course we could read Hebrews chapter 12 and say, Affliction, another word for that is discipline. That's how he deals with wandering kids. That's how parents deal with wandering kids discipline to bring them back. But the end goal is that they be brought back, that they walk restored. So discipline is actually good for a Christian. And perhaps even for a non-Christian, he might bring affliction to you that is designed to teach you, you know, the way of the wicked is hard, like the Bible says. The way of the wicked is hard. The way of the wicked is hard. Why walk over there? Come over here while I'll deliver you. That may be his merciful goal in affliction, but we have to also be real that eventually affliction is also called judgment. That's kind of what he's doing with Ahaz here and the people of Judah. There reached a point in, in Judah's history where God actually tells the prophets to stop praying for Judah because he's decided what he's going to do with them. He's going to carry them into exile. There's a turning point here even in this chapter. From here on, it's down. He's bringing judgment to Ahaz. That's the kind of affliction that he's bringing. Ahaz needs deliverance. He knows it. Everybody knows it. God offers it. Ahaz says, no thanks, and goes to Assyria, his worst enemy. How does God respond to that? God does not just let go of him and say, okay, then just do whatever you want and check back later. No. Ominously, he says, I will still be with you. I will be with you to bring to you exactly what you wanted. I will bring to you Assyria. I will summon them. I will pour them out on the land. I will shame you with them. I will bring this country into decline. Hear that and take care. Rarely do we blatantly say, I do not trust God. We rarely put it quite that clearly. We often try to act just the opposite. We say with our mouths, we say spiritual things. We go through spiritual activities. Maybe we come to church on the holidays. We go to a Bible study. We get really involved with spiritual things, trying to say, I- I'm religious. I know God. I-, I like God. I'm with God. I'm tight with Him. All of that masking over what's really going on inside the heart, far from Him. Wandering far away, seeking deliverance in any number of other things. Is that you? We may not know. Because you might be very religious. Very spiritual. Very churched. But in the heart, seeking deliverance everywhere else. Not firm in faith. Don't deceive yourselves. God is not mocked. He knows. None of those things that you seek deliverance in actually help. It may look like it for a little while. Ahaz turns to Assyria, and for a little while, they come in. Historically, we can read this even. They come in, and they clean things up in the north. They take care of Syria, and they take care of Israel. And just like God said, they keep coming. It looks pretty good at first. Hey, we're sustained. Our enemies are wiped out. And then it turns around to bite them. It may look pretty good to you, the things you've sought deliverance in. You've hidden in money. You've hidden behind status. You've gathered around you a whole bunch of friends who reinforce you and encourage you and lift you up. And that may all look good and feel great right now but it cannot deliver you. It cannot deal with the problems in your life, and it definitely cannot deal with the main problem you have between you and God and your soul. It will not deliver. Don't go there. Run all those things through your life in which you need deliverance. If it's a tangible, physical thing, run it through your mind. If it's a spiritual problem. Guilt. Guilt. A burden that you're carrying, trying to be good enough. Run those things through your mind and say, where does my hope lie? Is it in Christ and His cross alone? Do I go to Him and say, Lord, this is your problem, help. I will wait until you work. Or do you just say that and then go somewhere else? Run it through your mind. Clear it up for yourselves. God is present to afflict those who do not trust him. Specifically, those who do not trust fully in Jesus. That takes us to our third point. Bring this around to Christmas now, the birth of Jesus. That's Isaiah 7. It has those two sides of Emmanuel the positive, the deliverance, the negative, the affliction holding those things up in that chapter. But it's very focused on Ahaz and his time. There's a child that's going to be born in Ahaz's lifetime. Assyria is going to come in Ahaz's lifetime. So it's very focused right there. How does this get to us 730-some years later? God is with us to deliver or to afflict in the person of Jesus. This is what Matthew brings home for us. God is present with us now in the person of Jesus to either deliver or to afflict. Many of us are familiar with Matthew chapter 1, verse 20. The angel speaking to Joseph about Mary says to him, Joseph, that which is conceived in Mary is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Matthew looks at the birth of Jesus and sees in it the fulfillment of the prophecy in Isaiah 7. But just like we saw in Isaiah, that the focus is not primarily on the virgin, but on the son. Same things going on in Matthew. It's not primarily focusing on the virgin, Now, the virgin birth of Jesus is critical. Don't get me wrong. It's true, and it's critical. It establishes that Jesus does not have a sinful, fallen nature like all the rest of us do. Luke emphasizes that in his gospel, but Matthew's not emphasizing that. Matthew's got a different focus. He's drawn to Isaiah because of the pattern that is set up there that he says is now fulfilled in Jesus. Fulfilled, as in... Weight is added to. It's fleshed out. The fullness is made clear. Kind of like if we look at the sacrificial system, where all those lambs were slain at Passover and whatnot, and then we look at Jesus on the cross, we say, wow, this adds a lot to that. This makes clear what all this was pointing to. Same thing going on here birth of Jesus makes clear, adds a lot of weight to what Isaiah is talking about. There's a pattern established in Isaiah. He looks back at that, and he says, God predicts through a prophet to Ahaz that a young maiden, who may be a virgin, is going to have a son, It's going to be God with us, and when he is with us, it will be either to deliver or to afflict, and we must stand firm in faith. Now, I look at Jesus and I say, wow, this is that stepped up a notch. God predicts through an angel that a child will be born to a woman who is clearly a virgin. And it will be born by miraculous intervention of God the Holy Spirit. And that child's given name will be Jesus, which literally means salvation, deliverance which is fitting because he's going to deliver from sin. We have to respond in faith to this one, or we are afflicted and we perish. He sees a pattern that's carried forward here into Jesus. That's what he's highlighting. He's not saying, we've been waiting for a virgin birth. Here it is. He's saying, we've been waiting for deliverance. Here is God come among us just like he did back there in Isaiah. God come among us to deliver, trust, and be firm in faith. Because if we don't, he will afflict us. We don't want to follow Ahaz here, we want to go a different way. What we are celebrating here at Christmas is God coming among us in a profound way not just in spirit or in power, not just visiting us with a message, but actually personally visiting. And now God the Son forever has a human nature. He has permanently tied himself to us. He is here. God with us, Emmanuel, in a profound way. Do not miss the warning. And the offer. The offer. I've come to deliver you. I've come to deal with your sin problem. I've come to be the solution to all that you face in life. I'm eager to do that. That's why I came. To be a Savior. That's what my name means. Jesus. I will deliver. Trust me. And if you don't, I will be the rock upon which you fall, stumble and are broken. From the very moment that Jesus came, he divided people. He's with us right now. He first came as a baby. From the very beginning, dividing people. He drew people to him. wise men and shepherds sought him to worship. Herod sought him to kill him. He grew up. He was a friend and a blessing, joy and delight to prostitutes, tax collectors, sinners of all sorts, lame, blind, and broken. They turned to him for help, and he was a delight to them. And he was a curse to the Pharisees and the self-righteous who thought they could do it all by themselves, that they didn't need his deliverance. He sat at the table with Matthew and tax-collecting friends, and he sat at the table with Simon the Pharisee, giving words of hope to one and words of affliction and judgment to the other. He's two different things to two different groups of people. Not because he's different, but because they are. The key ingredient, whom do they trust? This group is saying, I trust you, I need you, I turn to you, I come to you. And this group is saying, how dare you assert your authority over me? I am going somewhere else. He divides, but he's present. And he's here this morning. God is with you. Emmanuel, he is with you to deliver you or to afflict you. Which one it will be depends on if you trust him or not. So come to him.
0: Let me pray.